Our situation bears a very excruciating similarity to the situation of the prisoner. And we must never forget this. For if we do, we will lose our desire for freedom and our will to struggle for liberation. And just as we must learn from the similarities and acquire an awareness of all the forces which oppress us out here, it is equally important that we understand that the plight of the prisoner unfolds in the rock-bottom realms of human existence. Welcome to Columbia Race Talks 2. We are your hosts, Elizabeth Debanka, Goddard Solomon, Rania Bukhari, students at Columbia Law School. Today's session looks at writing and literacy by critically juxtaposing the narratives of formerly enslaved people with those of formerly incarcerated individuals. The common themes in these narratives illuminate the larger issues of modern day slavery through incarceration. The first part of our podcast will dive into two historical slave narratives, the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave, and incidents in the life of a slave girl by Harriet Jacobs. Next, we'll examine the hurdles of literacy, writing, and publication in conversation with Professor David Coogan. Professor Coogan is an associate professor of English at Virginia Commonwealth University, who specializes in rhetoric, the teaching of writing, and prison literature. Professor Coogan gives us a glimpse into the writing process for incarcerated people as they write their way out. We also speak to Professor Flores Forbes, an urban planner, writer, and former Columbia University administrator who has written two books on the topic of incarceration, Will You Die With Me? and Invisible Men, A Contemporary Slave Narrative in the Era of Mass Incarceration. Professor Forbes shares his experience while incarcerated and how he reclaimed his narrative through writing post-incarceration. We wrap up the podcast by bridging the two narratives. We critically analyze how the narratives of formerly enslaved people and formerly incarcerated people share a commonality that highlights how the exceptions clause of the 13th Amendment maintains the institution of slavery in our modern time through incarceration. Part one historical slave narratives. In this segment, we will analyze the impact and legacy of slave narratives. The white folks didn't allow us to even look at a book. They would scold us and sometimes whip us if they caught us with our head in a book. That is one thing I surely wanted to do, to learn how to read and write. Master Jim promised to teach us how to read and write, but he never had the time. That was a voice narration of former enslaved person Mary Ella Granberry from Barton, Alabama, circa 1936. During the time of slavery, literacy was seen as a threat to white supremacy. In fact, white reaction to Nat Turner's rebellion in 1831, along with the spike in abolitionist writing, led to more anti-Black literacy laws in the South. Georgia passed laws prohibiting African-American education in 1830, in 1835, North Carolina outlawed all public instruction of Africans. In 1847, Missouri passed laws making it illegal to teach Black people how to read. A common form of punishment for enslaved people who learned to read was amputation. So why risk so much? Many didn't, but for those that did risk mutilation and violence, they believed that literacy was a path to mobility and would increase their sense of self-worth. 
Some authors have even suggested that enslaved people had a greater desire to learn how to read than poor white people. And in fact, those that could read were mostly urban and house slaves. The majority of those individuals who learned how to read were children, about 70%. A lot of enslaved people who learned as children were taught by white children who did so either unknowingly or in secret. Although roughly one third of them learned how to read and never learned how to write. There were two main internal explanations for literacy from the perspective of an enslaved person, Bible literacy and liberated literacy. The rationale for literacy from the perspective of enslavers was mostly practicality. Enslaved people in the house needed to have special skills. Bible literacy, however, was to make them more God-fearing while steering clear of more revolutionary content in the Bible. So how many people ultimately became literate? The Federal Writers Project conducted a survey of 3,428 formerly enslaved people and found that a bit over 5% of them, approximately 179, knew how to read during enslavement. We should ask ourselves, what does it mean to be literate? Henry Giroux is an American-Canadian scholar who is most known for his contributions to pedagogy, higher education, and critical theory. He defines critical literacy in 1987 as not emancipation, but rather a means to be, quote, present and active in the struggle for reclaiming one's voice, history, and future. There are people who are just unaware of what it means to change the circumstances in which they find themselves because they don't have the language. They don't have the theoretical language to do it. And I think in one way, that's not about ignorance. That's about a, a political vacuum that they tend to find themselves in. Secondly, there are people who have the language but are so structurally beaten down that it's very difficult for them to act. And I, I, and I don't want to argue that language is really the only place we can go to sort of reinvent a world that needs to be changed. I want to argue that we need to think about what it means to create a formative culture that actually provides a language that links the notions of critique to traditions of the past, historical memory, public memory, with the need to revitalize a sense of individual and collective agency one that's tied in some fundamental way to the gap between what is and what ought to be. That great sort of tension that has mobilized revolutions all over the world, mobilized institutions, allowed people to think otherwise in order to act otherwise. Critical literacy became a transformation of the master's tools, i.e. language, into an instrument of liberation that transforms the structures of oppression. Critical literacy means understanding that restrictions on language were meant to keep enslaved persons in a culture of silence. We look at the case study of Frederick Douglass and Harriet Jacobs. The criminalization of literacy often forced enslaved people to live illiterate lives where they were only ever seen as the objects of thought, but never its subject. To be a subject meant claiming your own name. And Harriet J Jacobs and Frederick Douglass did so when they wrote autobiographies about their lives and detailed the horrors of enslavement. Academics met Douglass's book with great skepticism. Overall, there were concerns about the legitimacy of slave narrators as people doubted their authenticity. As a matter of fact, during Douglas's book tours, 
White audiences often did not believe that he had been enslaved because of his skills as an orator and his intelligence. He wrote his first book in 1845, about the time of his enslavement. Douglas would go on to write two more books, his second delving into his life as a free person. In all three books, he wrote about how literacy catapulted his recognition of self, his ability to communicate that to the outside world, and awakened his intellectual consciousness. Knowledge had come. Light had penetrated the moral dungeon where I dwelt. And behold, there lay the bloody whip for my back. And here was the iron chain. And my good, kind master, he was the author of my situation. The revelation haunted me, stung me, and made me gloomy and miserable. As I writhed under the sting and torment of this knowledge, I almost envied my fellow slaves their stupid contentment. This knowledge opened my eyes to the horrible pit and revealed the teeth of the frightful dragon that was ready to pounce upon me, but it opened no way for my escape. I have often wished myself a beast or a bird, anything rather than a slave. I was wretched and gloomy beyond my ability to describe. I was too thoughtful to be happy. It was this everlasting thinking which distressed and tormented me, and yet there was no getting rid of the subject of my thoughts. All nature was redolent of it. Once awakened by the silver trump of knowledge, my spirit was roused to eternal wakefulness. He says, quote, once awakened by the silver trump of knowledge, my spirit was roused to eternal wakefulness. Literacy, however, was not everything he had hoped for. He goes on to critique it as becoming a burden too heavy to bear because it gave him a view of his, quote, wretched condition without remedy and that he envied the, quote, stupid contentment of enslaved people that did not have this knowledge. In her book, Harriet Jacobs writes about the sexual abuse that she experienced at the hands of the man who enslaved her. Her understanding of critical literacy is evident in the preface of the book. I have not written my experiences in order to attract attention to myself. On the contrary, it would have been more pleasant to me to have been silent about my own history. Neither do I care to excite sympathy for my own sufferings but I do earnestly desire to arouse the women of the North to a realizing sense of the condition of two millions of women at the South, still in bondage, suffering what I suffered, and most of them far worse. I want to add my testimony to that of abler pens, to convince the people of the free states what slavery really is. Only by experience can anyone realize how deep and dark and foul is that pit of abominations. Part two, literacy and writing our way out, where we dive into the beginnings of literacy in prisons and jails. So, you know, and the way they compute a literacy level is kind of problematic, but basically what it breaks down to is vocabulary, sentence structure, um, you know, and then higher level thinking like, you know, subordinate coordinate thinking with clauses and, you know, detailed um, structured arguments and so on. Statistics on education levels and illiteracy rates in the American prison system are alarming. In fact, prisons are plagued by high illiteracy rates. We know that Black and Hispanic individuals are disproportionately represented in the prison population compared to their counterparts. The latest statistics from the United States Department of Justice 
date all the way back to 2003. These statistics show us that 68% of state prison inmates did not receive a high school diploma. Compare this to the general population where 8.9% of Americans hold less than a high school diploma or equivalent. In terms of illiteracy rates, most recent data shows that more than half of the adults incarcerated cannot read or write and have less than an eighth grade education level. This contributes to difficulties in gaining employment post-incarceration. Folks that are released are often unable to find a job either because they lack skills that can be marketed or because they are illiterate. The very high rates of illiteracy have led to state-sponsored education programs or education programs created by private organizations or individuals. Data shows us that incarcerated people are more likely to participate in these types of programs if they know it will improve their chances at success after they are released. In fact, those who engage in education programs had a 43% lower likelihood of returning to prison. These stats have only improved over the years, demonstrating the importance of education. The odds of securing employment post-incarceration is 13% higher for individuals who participate in education programs than those who do not. When we look at vocational training programs specifically, we found that there was a 28% higher rate of obtaining employment post-release versus those in academic programs or was 8% higher. Professor Coogan started an education program in the Richmond Jail in Virginia that focuses on writing. This class later became the subject of a book and a podcast called Writing Our Way Out. The class started at the jail. The class with those men that you're taught that we're talking about now, the ones that are in the book, that class started in 2006 um, at the jail. And the people that got into the class were selected for me by a nonprofit. All I told the person from the nonprofit was, I just want people that want to write. I don't care what the charge is. I don't care what they look like. Um, I don't care how old they are or young they are, just as long as they want to write and they want to be open about their lives. And so um, there's a range of ages and people with different charges in there. But by and large, um, most of them were people, most of them were black and most of them were middle-aged. Most of them had been to jail before and most of their charges had something to do with drugs. So either they had stolen for drug money or they were, you know, a drug relapse and they did something, they violated some lower level law. Um, so it wasn't like a prison where you have to struggle to get in and you're working with these people that had done 20 years and they're in there for murder or something like that. It was a jail and a jail is much different than a prison. It's temporary. A jail is where you wait until you go back to court, you know, and get your, well, you know, this, you're law students, <laughs> you know, so um, it, it, by its very nature, it was a temporary transitional place where I would just work with whoever wanted to be there. In our conversation with Professor Coogan, he spoke about how prison conditions do not lend themselves to a school environment. He specifically talked about prison culture and the challenges posed by daily lockdowns, headcounts, searches, and the violence in the institution. 
the 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 sheriff's office generally w was very very good to me i mean of course you have to roll with it if they lock down the whole place for whatever reason and you can't do your class well you're not gonna there's no getting there's no arguing with them about that um now they're indifferent and basically not interested in any in me you know so the, the other side of it is that if i come in for a class starting at 10 and the guards haven't pulled my men to come to my class until 11. <laughs> well, my class is going to be shorter that day. So, you know, we're in universities, we're used to kind of an egalitarian environment. We used to kind of thinking that we're all equal and deserve respect and first name basis and all that. And it's just not like that in there. It's it's their world and you're in it. So you have to fit in. Uh, and so for me, that meant dealing with a lot of delays. Sometimes the person, the people in my class wouldn't be there and I would never get a reason. It could be they had court. It could be that they had a visit. It could be that that nobody called them off their tier. It could be they just chose not to come. You know, like, so it's just, it's kind of chaotic in that way. In addition to institutional barriers, Many incarcerated people struggle with confidence when putting their story to pen and paper, especially when they're learning how to read and write at the same time. However, the process of gaining literacy itself can empower an individual to share a story they've always carried with them. If you don't have a story and you're not in touch with your story and you don't have a hunger to, to express it, you can't be a writer. I mean, you're all young, but imagine if you had something inside of you that you had to get out for years, some trauma, some 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 uh, depredation to your identity, and nobody, nobody cared. Nobody listened to you, and you're in a hostile environment where you can't even express it, not even simply, not even once. Now imagine you're in prison. And the world around you is closing in and there's danger and threats all around and even more deprivation, another trauma. Prison itself is a trauma. And and you still have this, this prior thing in you, this prior hurt or anger. And then you come to a writing class and somebody asks you to share a story. What do you think is going to happen? They have the hunger to tell it. They've been through a hell of a lot. And if you can, if you can kind of set the space, hold the space, make it safe, make it life affirming, non-judgmental, open. If you can do those things, ooh, you're going to hear some amazing stories. As our next interviewee, Professor Flores Forbes talks about literacy through the form of novel writing can serve as an opportunity to reinvent yourself. When I grew up, I got harassed by the police, got beat up by the police. So when I saw these two men who were organizing armed patrols to stop the police from brutalizing us and murdering us, I'm like, well, I'm, 
I'm, I'm going to join up. Part three, the power of storytelling. Now we will dive into the life and memoirs of Professor Flores Forbes. Professor Forbes, you've said before that you come from a population of people who are not afraid. Um, and that enabled you to be recruited by and to join the Black Panther Party. What does it mean to not be afraid? And how do you communicate that in your writing? I mean, I, I, I think it was my, my, uh, my parents, you know, my, my father, who um, talked to me about what it was like to be in the South. And that, yes, those are the things that did happen to us. But you will not let it happen to you because you shouldn't be afraid of that. You know, um, you know, and, and so I think it started there, you know, in, 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 in that, that household. Uh, and when I joined the Black Panther Party, it was like this other other kind of experience. It was a kind of an out-of-body experience. I, I couldn't believe that there were people who were not afraid of the state, you know, because the, you know, it was about force. It was about violence. They were using violence against uh, black people, whether you were doing nonviolent protests. In fact, it was almost worse. You know, they were terrorizing our communities by bombing churches and killing little black girls. Uh, they were lynching people. And that was supposed to make you afraid. You know, and I, I realized, I said, I, you know, I said, I'm not going to survive if I don't fight. So I realized that that was a big part of that. And, um, you know, but when I, when I first joined the Black Panther Party, I was, I was afraid when I saw the things happening. But then there was a point after so many years, it was gone. Professor Forbes was a member of the Black Panther Party and became fiercely dedicated to the movement. The Black Panther Party was founded in October 1966 in Oakland, California by Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale. It was a Black nationalist revolutionary organization rooted in socialism and armed self-defense, particularly against police brutality. By the time he was 25, Professor Forbes had earned a place in the party's elite inner circle as an assistant chief of staff. You know, I left school when I was, I was 16. And I left home when I was 16. And I said, you know, it's like you're going to run off and join the circus. Well, I'm going to run off and join the revolution. And I didn't know that it was, that was it. I didn't realize that that was going to be my life for, you know, for, for my, you know, my early uh, adulthood you know, all the way into maturity. And um, and it was really important to me. It was, you know, that experience was probably the most impactful experience I've ever had in my life. I've done a lot of things, but that, being in that organization around people who were serious, uh, people who actually liked themselves and liked their people.
Ultimately, Professor Forbes was sentenced to prison in connection with his involvement with the Black Panther Party, but literacy operated as both a shield and a sword for him while he was incarcerated. I mean, I was able to get transferred from one prison that was a really, really dangerous place to another one because this counselor saw that I had read all these books in, these, in, the, in the college courses I was taking. He was like, man, you don't need to be here. So you know? being literate provided you safety. It, it provided me opportunity. Mm. You know, it's not, you know, you're not safe. That, that's an entirely different issue, you know what I mean? I think you, you have more opportunity an opportunity to be in a place that is a minimum security or as opposed to being in maximum security where uh, the guards' lives aren't safe. So if their lives aren't safe, yours isn't either. During our interview, he also spoke of the untapped potential of many incarcerated people who were illiterate. Uh, there was a, an ethnographer um, who wrote a book called Cocaine Kids. And he embedded himself in a gang, cocaine gang in the Bronx for like a year. And with, through his analysis, he showed that the skills that they use to move their drugs are the same skills that a bond trader on Wall Street uses. Mm. You know, weights and measures, uh, knowing your market, setting prices, uh, that sort of thing. So, so, so there is that, but, but they're never going to get an opportunity, you know, to do that until someone says, okay, well, those are transferable skills. When Forbes was eventually released from prison, he was able to continue his education and find a job, but this was not without its challenges. When I got out of prison, I finished college and I finished graduate school, I went into the private sector and became an urban planner. Now that was an unusual place to be okay. because there are all of these roadblocks. You know, you have financial disclosures, you're worried about people taking bribes and, and that sort of thing, right? And the opportunity to, to uh, commit another crime is there, you know? But I think that um, being able to navigate that system was, you know, it was because I could, I could read and write, you know, I understood math, you know, at a high level. And, and those were some of the skills that I needed. Will You Die With Me is the name of your first book. Uh, has a very provocative title, and it's about your experiences um, in life in prison. Is there a reason you chose to write an autobiography as opposed to fiction, poetry, or any other writing style? I did want to write fiction at first um, because I was, you know, as, as, as many, and I think many black men who come out of prison, they have a tendency to hide until they can overcome the stigma of being uh, formerly incarcerated. You know, because you, you get all this negative feedback in terms of jobs and, and, and just, just, you know, social relationships, everything like that. Um, I, you know, I chose to do a, a uh, autobiography or memoir because I had 18 years of experience that I couldn't put on a resume. Thank you.
when I got to the point of writing, it was, you know, I had been out of prison a few years. And I realized I needed to tell a different kind of story. I needed to tell a story from my perspective because no one had actually done that. I needed to talk about what this organization was. You know, like, like they'll say, well, you know, you were just a, a, a political gangster. You know, I said, well, you know what? I'm going to write so I can define what I am. So I'm going to say, this is what I am. So I'm going to tell this story. Will You Die With Me is the name of the first book. That's, I mean, that's just a political statement. That's like, will you vote for me? Or even at a more mundane level, you're at a party, someone says, will you dance with me? Okay, so the whole issue of will you die with me, that has more to do with you making a commitment. And this was, you know, this was the, the world that we were in. You know, will you die with me is, you know, I think it's like a Buddhist phrase. You know, it's like this real deep commitment that you're making to someone. Uh, the first time I heard it was from uh, Huey P. Newton. And we were in a uh, speakeasy and the police were surrounding it. And he basically, he turned to me and some of the other people who were there and says, okay, we're not going to jail tonight. I'm like, okay. And then that's when he said, you know, will you die with me? I'm like, wow, you know, this was a really interesting question to ask me at this time. And I said, yes. And I realized that it was more impactful to him than it was to me because I believe that the camaraderie that you're seeking in a community, you know, where you're fighting, you know, you may be fighting, you're fighting a struggle that you believe in. Maybe other people don't believe it, but how much do you really believe in it? You know, do you believe in it enough to, to risk your life? So I, so I realized that, you know, these are some of the things I needed to put this down. I needed to put this on paper. I needed to, um, talk about where I came from. Part 4 the 13th Amendment Exceptions Clause. In this final segment, we bridge slave and prison narratives. You have, you have three plantations that are prisons. You know, Angola, Parchment in Mississippi, and Cummings in, in Arkansas, where people are actually picking cotton, right? And they're, they're doing the same kind of harvesting that, you know, the, uh, that their ancestors did. The 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution passed in 1865. It says, Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States, or any place subject to their jurisdiction. While the 13th Amendment is cited as ending slavery in the United States, many critics say it left a loophole that has allowed for mass incarceration to proliferate. The exception clause and where it comes from, right, 
but for me, I believe that it was inserted in the 13th Amendment to control the black population after emancipation. Because all throughout history, before the Civil War ended, the biggest fear that the white population had was emancipation, right? Because they were like, well, wait a minute. We, you know, we, they, didn't want, they didn't want you here in the first place. You know, Thomas Jefferson's thing was we have to, you know, send them to Africa or send them to Haiti because uh, we've treated them very badly. We've maimed them, we've murdered them, we've raped their women, we've, we've changed who they are, you know, as a, as, a, as a people. You know, they've been enslaved for like, you know, 300 years. So, so, the, so the exception clause in many ways is kind of that flashpoint that's still there. You know, yes, well, wait, wait a minute, is, is there any other country in the world that has a constitutional amendment that makes you a slave when you go to prison? What does that have to do with rehabilitation? You know, what does it have to do with coming out of society? I think it has more to do with, you know, and, and obviously, you know, the prison population isn't 100% black. But at one time in this country, it was zero, okay, during slavery, okay? And then not long after that, when you had the, the black codes and, and the chain gangs and that sort of thing, that population started to increase. There is immense power in storytelling, whether oral or written. Passing on a story not only means there is a record for the world documenting what you have to say, but it also can be cathartic for yourself. We discuss this in the narratives of Jacobs and Douglas, whose own journey to literacy was transformative and revolutionary for them and so many generations following. Their words changed more than a generation because here we are, hundreds of years later, talking about their experiences. Slave narratives served as first-hand perspectives to what many have dubbed America's original sin. While in 2023, many sit in complacent comfort that such sin has been legally vacated from our society, millions of Americans sit in prisons that have been cited as the modern archetype of slavery. The Exceptions Clause of the 13th Amendment has served as a loophole for the incarceration of millions of people and is valued as a multi-billion dollar industry, with U.S. taxpayers spending more than $80 billion a year to keep people in prisons and jails. As a reminder to our audience, that this is a population of individuals who experts say are paid roughly 13 to 52 cents an hour on average, but who produce labor in prisons that is valued at roughly $2 billion in goods and $9 billion in prison maintenance services annually. Deborah Peterson-Small is the founder and executive director of Break the Chains, a public policy research and advocacy organization committed to addressing the disproportionate impact of punitive drug policies on poor communities of color. She explains the nexus between slavery, capitalism, and mass incarceration. The thing that we have to remember essentially is that racism is a product and in support of capitalism and that slavery was basically a capitalist enterprise. And so from the very beginning of the period after which Black people were legally no longer enslaved, the same economic forces were looking for ways to continue to profit from free labor. And so this exception in, this, in the statute um, regarding the ability to punish a person 
for conviction of a crime created the perfect opportunity. And I think it's important to remember that the kinds of crimes that Black people were being locked up for and convicted of were things like vagrancy, like um, stealing a pig, like doing basic kind of um, uh, survival crimes or misdemeanor offenses, many of the same kinds of things that are currently being used by our prison industrial complex to support mass incarceration. While many people don't have the same sympathy for individuals who are incarcerated as they would proclaim to have for enslaved persons, prison narratives help to humanize and make more tangible the lived realities of so many people who are victim to a system predicated on their downfall, similar to how slavery was. When Professor Forbes spoke in our interview about how difficult it was to finally write his story years after he got out of prison, and partially as a defense of himself and his career, it touched me. Yeah, and I can't help but think of the many similarly situated people who were or are currently incarcerated, but due to life circumstances or systemic illiteracy, are never able to tell their stories. And as we have seen, sharing these stories is not only powerful for the individual themselves, but also has an impact on the audience who reads these stories. And what is a good story, if not one that rouses us to take action or to transform our current reality into something more beautiful and better than it is now? Yeah, and we spoke about how critical literacy can be used as a tool of transformation. And not all writing is necessarily meant to be a political manifesto or radically change the world. True, but as we've discussed, that form of critical literacy is often born from a deep desire from the author to not only liberate themselves, but to call attention to others still under the subjugation as they once were. And this is the underlying passion we have now seen in both narratives of formerly enslaved people and those of formerly incarcerated individuals. Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast and diving into the topic of critical literacy with us. We hope you learned a lot about these two important narratives and how our legal institutions continue to perpetuate these troubling racial dynamics. I know we all certainly did. Thank you so much to Professor Coogan and Professor Forbes for their invaluable and thoughtful insight. For CRT2, this is Elizabeth Debenka, Goddard Solomon, and Ghania Bukhari signing off. Thank you.